Hi, and welcome to the Vine Community Church Podcast. We hope that what you're about to hear will help you to flourish in God's grace and bear fruit through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. Um, My name is Andrew Collins. I am the youth ministry team leader here at the Vine, um, and I'll make a shout out for the refresh slide that came up earlier. If you want to come to refresh, we would love to have you. It will be a blast and uh, just a fun weekend to get to meet and hang out with the middle school and high school students here um, at the Vine. It's been a busy week. Uh, for the Collins family. Um, I had, we've had our first child a little over two weeks ago. Um, and as you can imagine, I've been getting lots of sleep and personal time to myself. I feel very refreshed in this moment with you this morning. Um, and on top of that, uh, the Lord saw fit that our AC would go out this past week. And we don't have one of those homes. It's like, oh, the top floor went out. Let's just go to the bottom. It's like the whole house is 89 degrees. So um, we packed up my uh, bright red baby because she was uh, very warm. And my wife that was on the verge of sweating. And we moved into my parents' house. Imagine having to pack up a two-week-old and everything that you need for a two-week-old. We had a U-Haul van. And we moved into my parents' house for a couple nights. But somewhere in the midst of that, the Lord was gracious enough to give me a sermon for this morning. Um, And I'm very excited to be with y'all and to be with the people of God this morning. Um, You know, about seven years ago, on a beach in Libya in February of 2015, Libyan Islamic State militants released a video of the martyrdom of Christian men in Libya. The footage of their martyrdom included a caption that read, The People of the Cross, the hostile church in Egypt. The 21 men who knelt down before their persecutors were identified as the people of the cross and asked to deny their faith or die. Many of the men are seen uttering their final words on earth, Lord Jesus Christ. While it was reported that all the men were from Egypt, it later became known that that was not the case. There was actually a man who was a part of the 21 who was not from Egypt. He was from Chad. His name was Matthew Ariaga. And it's believed actually that before kneeling, he wasn't actually a Christian. And as he knelt down beside the people of the cross, witnessing their courage and faith, he chose to follow Jesus. Mere moments before Matthew was executed, his executors are seen asking, do you reject Christ? His reply, their God is my God. Matthew joined his brothers that day and laid his life down alongside them. He and the 20 other men joined the ranks of those of whom the world is not worthy. I can only imagine the reception they got when they stepped out of their earthly bodies and breathed in their first of heaven. And they received fully the grace in which they knelt down in. We got this picture a couple weeks ago when we talked about Stephen and the stoning of Stephen and the impact it had on the church. And while I want this story to be an encouragement to us, 
that we also, along with these men, would cry out, Lord Jesus, in every moment. What I want to do, actually, though, is to focus on the executors. Because as we've been tracking in the book of Acts, there's been this guy named Saul who has been persecuting and killing Christians. And we come to a major turning point today for the church. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open. We're going to be in Acts 9 this morning. And we're going to talk about this guy named Saul. This series we've been in is entitled The Power of the Church in the Face of Persecution. And we've been walking through the book of Acts, and this morning we're going to be walking through chapter 9, most of it, with Saul's conversion. This is one of the most detailed conversions that we have in the Bible. The last time we heard of Saul, he was approving of the killing of Stephen, and he was pulling Christians out of their homes to arrest and beat them. But then we get this gap in chapter 8 where we see the church growing. The gospel is going forward. The persecution is not stopping it. The church is growing. And then in chapter 9, the first two words, but Saul. But Saul. Our chapter picks up today with this statement. This chapter in your Bible is probably entitled Saul's Conversion. It's the most detailed, as I said earlier, and emphasized conversion in probably the whole Bible. And as we read through it this morning, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see how deep the grace of God is. How deep the grace of God is for you and I. Some of you may know the historical hymn, Amazing Grace. It says, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. What is grace? You know, we, t- we throw this word around a lot in church. Grace, we have grace, we have grace. But if someone sat down across from you and said, hey, could you define grace for me, what would you say? What is Grace. So we throw this word around a lot. Sometimes it can be put in categories of religious words, but I want to make a very clear distinction because I think there's two words that often get misunderstood and put together, and that's mercy and grace. You see, mercy is when someone doesn't receive the punishment that they deserve. Grace is not just not getting the punishment, but then getting a gift on top of it. They're different. You see, grace is receiving a special gift even when you've done nothing to deserve it. So I love this silly example. Maybe this will cement the idea in your brain. Uh, Imagine a kid comes home. There's been a lot of pressure to make, you know, good grades, and they just completely bombed the last math test. And you got an F, okay? And whether you're going to end up telling your parents or they're going to find out on Parent Connect, someone's going to find out somehow, right? And as you're walking in the door, you know what's coming. Like, they are not going to be happy with me. And you walk in, and your your dad's like, so we got your grade. Okay. I would love to take you out for ice cream. 
Huh? Yeah, I, I just want to take you out for ice cream. I know you made an F, but I think you uh, deserve to go out with me for ice cream. What? And as he takes you out, he starts to just tell you, I'm doing this to help you understand what grace is. Do you deserve going out for ice cream? No. You deserve to be sent to your room and probably punished for the next two weeks. But not only am I not going to punish you, I'm going to take you out for a gift. Understanding this word is going to be super important for Acts 9 and Saul's conversion. What Saul receives in Acts 9 is nothing short of an amazing gift. It's a gift of grace. So we're going to see in this story, we're going to pick it apart in different places. But overall, we have a man who is against the church. He is against the people of God, and he has been doing everything in his power to stop the people of the cross, to stop the people of the way. And on, in this chapter, he is headed to Damascus to do that very thing, and God meets him on the road to Damascus. So the three points that we're going to see here as we open up Acts 9 are these. We're going to see that we have a gift to be humbled. It's a gift that we have oneness with Christ, and it's a gift that we're being used as instruments. They're all gifts that Paul or Saul receives here, and they're gifts for us as well. We see each of these in the narrative here of the conversion of Saul. And disclaimer, as I already did, I may go back and forth between Saul and Paul, same person, okay? Just becomes Saul later, or becomes Paul later in life, which actually means small and will fit into our story here in a little bit. So the first point, gift to be humbled. Look at Saul's collision with God. Look at verse three. It says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. In this moment, Saul is realizing that he is in fact in opposition to the living God. God has met him on the road. Saul has been humbled. We see Saul immediately hit his knees. He is blinded by this light. God has stopped him in his tracks. When Jesus calls us to himself, we are immediately humbled. We're overwhelmed. We see ourselves clearly as sinners in the presence of a holy God. The mere voice of Jesus is powerful and it changes people. Saul was trending in the direction of religious prestige, power, significance. He was rising up the ranks. We see people laying cloths down at his feet and approving of the murder of Stephen. And not many years before, we see people laying down the same cloths as Jesus comes into the city in triumphal entrance. But the big difference here is that Saul was becoming what the people wanted, and Jesus was becoming what the people needed. Saul was becoming what the people wanted. Jesus was becoming what they needed. Do you ever get caught in the vicious cycle, chasing the things you want and missing the things you need? We are so prideful that we believe that if we can just get what we want, we'll be happy. 
will be fulfilled. Our wants can be very overpowering and loud. We can begin to believe the lies that they tell us, like, if you get me, life will be easier. If you gain me, then you'll have power. If you get enough of me, people will like you and they'll respect you. Before God changes our hearts, he has to give us eyes to see that we are consumed chasing the wants and never getting what we need. What we need is Jesus. And the only way we get Jesus is we get humbled. Because none of us choose Jesus. We have to be humbled and know that we have a need, and that need is for Jesus. But like Saul, we're on our own mad chases for something to fulfill us, to make us significant, to comfort us, or make us happy. For Saul, it was zealously persecuting Christians, building up his uh, righteousness. The depth of grace shown to this persecutor and wicked sinner is immense. He is humbled in its grace. Paul speaks of it as such when he says in his later letters that he is the chief of sinners. You understand at this moment when Paul is on the road to Damascus, he is never going to utter the words chief of sinner out of his mouth. Why? Because he believes he's good. He believes that he is better. Why is he persecuting these people? Because he believes he's right. But later, after he meets Jesus, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. The persecutor and the blasphemer learned on the road to Damascus that I am nowhere close to righteous. But God... He is patient, long-suffering, and gracious to this sinner. Saul, he even probably in this moment, I think, as he was writing Ephesians 2, probably thought back to this exact moment. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you and I have been saved. The Lord's timing and arm are never late or too short to save, to ransom, to sanctify even the most zealously rebellious sinners. Truth is, we're all zealously rebellious in our own ways. We all are trying to find our own goodness We need him to change our hearts. We need God to give us new eyes. It's a gift to humble man and to see his own sin and his need for the risen Savior. But often in this process, it's not without its pain and heartache. A great quote by a pastor named Frank Gill, he says, the Satan's true masterpiece is the Pharisee, not the prostitute. The belief that the Pharisee thinks he can save himself. And he'll live his whole life trying. Look at verses 8 and 9, the heartache and pain that comes with being humbled for Saul. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. 
Saul was humbled. Someone had to take his hand and slowly walk him into the city. He couldn't see anything. He couldn't even eat. He was so overwhelmed. Do you realize how stubbornly this Saul thought Jesus is not the Christ? And yet in this moment, he was changed because why? He saw Jesus. When we see Jesus, it changes us. Garrison talked a couple weeks ago that the resurrection changes everything. That's Saul's story. When he saw the resurrected Jesus, it changed everything for him. In verse 20, we see him proclaim this. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. I've seen it. He's him. For everyone in here who knows Christ as their Lord and Savior, there was a moment or a season when you came to the same acknowledgement, when you came to the moment where you said, he's the son of God. There's nowhere else I can go. He is the son of God. When I saw Jesus and the grace of his death and resurrection for me, it changed me. It brought me to my knees. It humbled me. It made me thankful From the last step Saul took on the road to Damascus to hitting the ground in fear as the light shone around him, Saul was changed. When we come into an encounter with the living Jesus, it changes everything. It humbles us. Look at verses 17 through 19. It says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales from his eyes fell and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. When he regains his sight and was filled with the Holy Spirit, the humbling of his own sin and seeing the risen Savior has changed his trajectory. He's no longer persecuting the church. He is now going to proclaim the name of Jesus of the church that he was persecuting. In the same way, we need to pray that people see Jesus. We don't need to pray that that we have great words or that they get put in the right circumstances or that hopefully they get to an intellectual ascent of Jesus. No, we need to pray that people see Jesus. Because Jesus changes people. It's important for Saul to see and hear the risen Jesus. It was the crux of everything that Jesus was risen. So I asked at the very beginning, how deep is the grace of Christ? Well, just like John Newton, the old slave ship captain that wrote Amazing Grace, Saul knew that Amazing Grace. Saul knew the depths of grace in which he stands, and he grew and grew more and more in understanding that from this moment. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. I can hear Paul singing these words. Hopefully God is daily opening the eyes of us to the gifts of grace we receive in the person of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. How did Saul come to find this grace? 
He saw the resurrected king. He realized he needed a savior and could not save himself. The grace we receive comes from a resurrected savior. Saul knew as he looked at Christ, the separation. He knew the only way that I could stand in the presence of this holy God is by grace. It would only be by the grace of God that on that moment when that light shone around him that he was not thinking, it's over. Judgment has come. That is Jesus and he has come to judge me. But he doesn't get judgment. He gets grace. The Lord's timing is never late or his power never too weak to save and redeem and sanctify even the most rebellious and self-righteous sinners, of which all of us are. If not for Jesus seeking us out and stopping us in our tracks, we would not know him today. None of us are good enough or smart enough to find Jesus. He has to find us. He has to humble us to see him. The next gift of grace that we see in this chapter is we see this story of conversion and this closeness of Christ, this oneness with Christ that we have. So point two is a gift of oneness. Look at verses three through five again. He says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. What's Saul being accused of here? Saul wasn't persecuting Christians when Jesus was on the scene. So what is Jesus talking about here? Is he confused? Why is he saying, you're persecuting me? Well, I think what we can see here is that Christ associates the persecuting done by Saul with himself. It's like every time that Saul arrests, beats, imprisons, accuses, or murders a Christian, Christ feels the pain. He feels it in his body, the hurt, the sadness, the struggle, because we're his body, the church. Saul had not persecuted Jesus directly at all, yet when he appears to him, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You realize God loves us so much that what you experience, he experiences. What you feel, he feels I think we don't really understand or acknowledge this oneness a whole lot, that we're the body of Christ. We are one with him and he with us, so much so that when a Christian is imprisoned, beaten, ridiculed, he associates it with himself. We have been given an incredible gift to be made one with our risen Savior. You know, in marriage, I think there's a good example of this, of how we feel this as well. If my wife is struggling or she's in pain or she experiences great joy, I feel that. Why? Because we've been made one. In my own body, it's not my experience, but it becomes my experience. I feel that. 
or maybe it's a child for you. Your child is hurting or they have immense joy or the pain of this life and you feel that as a parent. That oneness is what we have with Christ and what Saul is coming to find out here because he's being accused of you persecuting Christ, not Christians, but Christ. Jesus says, why do you persecute me? That question is aimed directly at Paul and indicates that while he thought he was merely attacking a group of people, he was actually attacking Jesus. To attack Christians was to attack Christ. They are one. This and more so is how much Christ loves us. Our oneness with our Savior is not just some kind of ethereal, intellectual oneness. No, it's soul, body, mind, together, one. Saul's being accused of persecuting this very oneness. I love how this theologian Howard Marshall puts it. Their sufferings consequently are his sufferings. They cannot be separated from him so that they can be assailed without afflicting him in consequence of the communion of life which he maintains with his people. He is ever in them and suffers, is reviled and persecuted with them. Saul was beginning to understand this oneness at his conversion. And later in his life, he would write repeatedly about this oneness. He came to a deep understanding of the grace that he received in the oneness with his Savior. Galatians 2.20 that Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith through the Son of God, who has died for me and gave himself for me. He's been given a new identity. It was a grace that he became someone that Christ lives in. Saul, or to be Paul, gets this truth maybe more than most of us. He literally writes about it 216 times in his letters after this moment. Do you think this moment shook him? He went from persecuting the body of Christ to become the very body who he was persecuting. I can only imagine the sorrow, regret, and thought that went to his past as he more and more realized the extent and depth of his persecution. How deep is the grace of God? He gives the gift of becoming one with him. That deep, a sinner made one with a holy God. He saves and redeems the wicked and rebellious sinner. He stops Saul on his path. The amount of grace God has for the persecutor Saul is quite extraordinary. This man was literally persecuting and murdering the body of Christ. And Christ goes, I'm going to make you one with me. This man, Saul, was given grace. The way that Christ speaks to Saul about persecution could one day be said of the persecution that Saul endures himself. We may not have a conversion story like Saul. As you think about what's the depth of grace for me, you may not have been imprisoning innocent people and murdering. I guess that's most of us. But I read the story of Saul and I see myself. I see my own heart, I see my own sin, 
And to think that I'm not capable of things is prideful. Whether it's Saul or any other person. Because who I am is only by the grace of God. You know, a great indicator for this as we start to deal with the beliefs and thought of our inner Pharisee, is you start hearing yourself saying things like, I would never. How could they? Can you believe that they? If you start to hear yourself saying these things, I'm going to guess you're no longer sitting in the grace of God, but you've begun sitting in your own works. And you're evaluating everyone else around you on the same things. Instead, you could see the brokenness in this world inside of you and be overwhelmed with thankfulness that God has given so much grace to save you from this sinful flesh and make you one with him. This is the depth of the grace of God. He takes us sinners, forgives us, and makes us one with him. This doesn't make sense. This shouldn't be like, oh yeah, of course he does. No, this is mind-blowing that he would do such a thing. It is grace. And all of his benefits become ours, all because of grace. But this story has one more gift of grace, Saul and we receive. We become instruments of a gracious king. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake and my name. Jesus now commands the commander. Obedience to the risen Savior has started. Paul became an instrument of God's power opposed to his own. You know, weakness marks the beginning, middle, and end of Paul's ministry. I would say human strength marked his ministry up until that road to Damascus. But we see in verses 8 and 9, he loses his sight. 17 and 18, he regains his sight, but it's because someone else prays for him and scales fall off his eye. And then in verses 20 and 23 through 25, people are plotting to kill him, and he has to be dropped in a basket. Weakness becomes his advantage, though. Saul's conversion was a major turning point for the gospel to go out to the nations. This was the beginning of the end to the promise and the commissioning of God. You know, Acts 1, 7 and 8 says, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God uses broken, wicked, stubborn, rebellious sinners in his glorious and extravagant plan. Sometimes we don't see the honor in it though. Do you see the gift that you've been given to be an instrument of God? In the cosmic plan of salvation, Christ building his kingdom through us, we have been given the gift of becoming instruments of God. You've been given purpose. 
Saul had no business being allowed to even sniff a chance at being a part of God's kingdom. And neither do we. Yet through the grace of the risen Savior, we are made co-heirs to the coming kingdom. Look at the end of our passage, starting in verse 19. Saul's being sought after. The Jews in Damascus are now desiring to murder him because he is proclaiming the name of Jesus. Man, have the tables turned. Starting in verse 19, we see, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon the name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. You know, remember earlier when Saul was trending in the direction of religious prestige and power? That changed. He now finds himself on the run for his life in a small basket being lowered through an opening in the wall that he might not be killed. Now, I'm I'm thinking this is probably not the best trade-off for Saul. I'm wondering if he's thinking, uh, might have made a massive mistake. I went from chief of persecution to a basket. Or if as he was being lowered, he was thinking, he's the son of God. He's the son of God. Saul was chosen and set apart. I think ever since he received his sight back, he was in awe of the risen Jesus. He was the Lord's and nothing was going to change that. And he could do nothing to gain that as much as he might have tried. If you're here this morning and know of the grace that I've been talking about, you know that out of the Lord's abundant kindness and grace, he has met us on our own road and revealed himself to us. God not only loves you with a depth of grace you could never understand, but he has given you a role in his kingdom. We are to proclaim the name of the risen Messiah everywhere we go. You know, we sit here today in large part because of what happened on that road to Damascus. Saul, to become Paul, ends up becoming the missionary that takes the gospel to the Gentiles. He's one of the greatest church planters the world has known. He began taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We have received that gospel because a persecutor who became the persecuted. Because he acknowledged Jesus truly is the Son of God. So how, va- how valuable is this grace to you this morning? How valuable is grace to you this morning? Are you sitting here thinking, no, nah, don't really need it. Doing pretty good. How valuable is grace to you this morning? How amazed are you that God would save a wretch like you and me? I truly believe that grace is the only thing that can truly change the heart of man. 
I've tried a lot of other tactics to change my own heart. Shame, guilt, trying harder, working harder, gaining more knowledge. None of it works like grace to my heart. When I sit and think on the grace in which I truly stand, it changes me. It makes me want to tell everyone I know about this amazing gift of God. If you're here this morning and this grace I've been talking about is unknown to you or it's not believable, I want to invite you to come and know the grace of God and the risen Messiah King. Maybe for the first time this morning, scales are falling from your eyes like Saul and you've been humbled, and you realize you have a need for grace. You're saying like Saul for the first time, he is the son of God. I invite you to come and know the gift of grace found in the risen Jesus. To know that your sins have been forgiven and paid for. You can be adopted into the family of God, and your life can be given purpose. You can become an instrument of the kingdom of God. Take his name to the ends of the earth. Paul knew of this grace. He writes about it in Ephesians 2, 5 through 10. We read some of this earlier and we'll read it again. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show you and I the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you and I have been saved through faith. It's not of our own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul was the greatest leader and writer among the saints, but he was a persecutor, a murderer, a blasphemer, and as he calls himself, a chief of sinners. Anyone in here feel those titles? Hear them speak over you, chief of sinners? I want you to hear that grace is coming out to you in the person of Jesus this morning. Don't sit in your shame and guilt any longer. If you know Jesus and he has become your Lord and Savior, grace is your story. Until God grabbed Saul by his grace and completely transformed his life and made him one of the greatest examples of what divine grace and power can do in and through a human being. Remember the story I told you at the beginning of the 21 Martyrs. The story of Saul is the story of one of those executors coming to know Jesus and then sharing him with the world. How is that even possible to go from killing to stop a religion to willing to be killed for that same religion? The only way is that you meet Jesus. When you see Jesus for the first time, it changes your trajectory. It changes your life. Because you don't know grace apart from him. You know, this world doesn't know grace. It's not how they operate. It's not what we do. We hold people on scales. We put ourselves in 
categories. Out there, grace is not understood. We need to take the message of grace to a world that's dying in their own shame and guilt and sin. It's only by knowing Jesus is alive and has given more grace than we ever deserve. Paul was saved by this grace, made one with Christ, and empowered to be an instrument of God. This grace changed him. He spent the rest of his life serving God to the ends of the earth. So my question for you this morning is, God's grace changing you? Is God's grace changing you this morning? Maybe for the first time in a week, two weeks, a year, your life, you're understanding grace because God has revealed it to you. My prayer is that it changes us. I hope that in the coming years, you and I might, might know as God shows us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are not worthy. What we deserve, we are not given. You don't treat us as our sin deserves. You give us mercy and grace. Father, I pray that we would fix our eyes more and more on the risen Messiah King. Lord, that Jesus would be our center, our gaze, where we know we're moving in the direction of. And Lord, that grace as we find Jesus would change us. Holy Spirit, change our hearts. Take the scales off our eyes so that we may see you. Humble us if we need to be humbled so that we might know Jesus and the grace in which he offers in his life, death, and resurrection. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at thevinecc.com, download our mobile app, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram at The Vine CC. Have a great week.